I'm good, Chris, on both ends? All right. So you're, gonna, you're, you're doing this class with the hope that you'll be discipling somebody, helping somebody, teaching somebody, mentoring somebody. That, that's the long-term goal. And uh, what you're going to find with, you're going to tell people to read the Bible, and they're going to tell you they don't understand it. And they will have sincerely tried. They will have sincerely opened it up. It's two demerits. All right. Sincerely um, make an effort, but they don't know what's going on. For many people, reading the Bible is like putting a puzzle together. And um, when you put a puzzle together, it's very easy to get discouraged and give up. My wife and my son like puzzles. I just couldn't care less. I see the pictures on the front of the box. Why do I need to make the picture? It's right there on the front of the box. But I watch them. I see what people who do put puzzles together do. And to put a puzzle together with any success, you do two things. Number one, you need to see the big picture. You need to see like what is the picture that this, all these pieces are trying to form. So you sit there with the box you know, while you're putting the puzzle together. And number two, you start with a framework. You find the edges and then you fill it in. So to keep yourself and others from getting lost or discouraged in God's word, what we're going to do for the next few classes is we're going to first start by seeing the big picture. What are the big ideas about the Bible that keep coming up over and over again that you can kind of keep an eye on and see how the pieces fit into that big picture? And then number two, we'll start with the framework. How is the Bible organized and assembled so you could start putting together your picture? So I'm going to give you in this first session 10, is it 10? I think it's 10. 10 big ideas about the Bible. And these big ideas will hopefully be a big picture for you to help you see what are the recurring themes and characters and just principles that the Word of God has. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. And um, thanks, Brian. Isaiah chapter 9. If you're there, say amen. Great. Because I'm not. I was stalling. So the first big idea about the Bible is the Bible. The Lord has three distinct plans. That's the first big idea about the Bible. I think that's one of your notes. The Lord has three distinct plans. The first plan is he has a plan for the universe. It's right there in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You thought that was a Christmas verse. That's a God's plan verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, first coming. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, second coming. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, millennia, uh, eternity. Seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The plan for the universe is it's supposed to be the kingdom for Jesus Christ. That's the universe's plan. <laughs> There's a lot of real estate up there that's yet to be inhabited. 
So God's plan, they talk about the expansion theory of the universe. They're half right. God's kingdom is going to continue to expand. It's going to start at Jerusalem. It's going to continue to expand out into the cosmos. That's the plan for the universe. Now look at Isaiah 45. He's also got a plan for the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 18. The Bible says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. The plan for the earth is to be inhabited. The earth is special. You know that? Scientists hate that. They want, they want, you know, if there was a big burp 20 billion years ago, all the stuff should be evenly distributed around the cosmos. But our planet is uniquely privileged and fine-tuned for life. There was a documentary years ago, you could check it out, called The Privileged Planet. It's about how Earth is just so special with liquid water, with its position in the cosmos, how we can support life. It's a privileged planet. In fact, uh, Genesis 1, the earth is the only planet that is specially named by God. All the other planets have names from the Roman pantheon. Mercury is the winged messenger, Roman god of travel. Venus, as you know from too many songs, is the goddess of love. Mars is the god of war. Jupiter is the king of the gods, the sky god, the god of thunder, like Zeus in the Greek pantheon, the one who throws lightning bolts. That is the biggest planet in our solar system, Jupiter. Saturn is the god of harvest and agriculture. Uranus is the god of the sky. Neptune is the god of the sea and waters. And Pluto, whether you want to count him as a planet or not, I don't know what the latest is, is the God of the underworld. But the earth was named by God because the earth is about what God's doing. If you go to Acts chapter 19 really quick, there's one other planet that's named in the Bible. Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, there's the female deity, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. There's the male god. You always see the male god and the female deity together. You know, from back as Isis and Osiris, as back to Egypt, it's all over the place. Here is Diana and Jupiter. Right? You say, what's the image that fell down from Jupiter? I have no idea. <laughs> but something fell down from the sky that people were worshiping. The only other planet named in the Bible is Jupiter, the god of thunder. Didn't, you, didn't Jesus say, I beheld Satan as Lucifer, Satan as lightning fall from heaven? <laughs> Zeus is the god of lightning. That's the same equivalent as Jupiter, the god of thunder, the king of the gods, right? The god of this world, Lucifer, the devil. He's the one that runs the show. That's what he thinks anyway. So the earth is what God named. That represents what God is doing. Jupiter represents what the devil's doing. And God has a plan for the earth to inhabit it. That's why, I don't care, I'll say it on YouTube, I don't care. That's why you got a lot of psychopathic nut jobs that want to depopulate the earth. 
because God's plan is to populate the earth, and you got psychopathic nut jobs who deserve to rot in hell that want to just wipe people out and create this as some kind of animal preserve for them and their rich friends. You say, really? The Humanist Manifesto lists keeping the population of planet Earth under half billion as one of their tenets. Jacques Cousteau, years ago, the guy that you know, explored underwater, he says, we need a 95% reduction in the human population. You first, Mr. Cousteau. <laughs> All right, go to Ephesians chapter 2. That was not part of the notes. All right, Ephesians 2, I'll probably get censored by the thought bots. Ephesians 2.7 Ephesians 2.7. And God's got a, so God's got a plan. I got to tell myself, don't get excited because you get excited, your voice is going to go into its upper registers and you're going to tear your throat out. So I got to stay calm. Drink my throat coat and be distinguished like Mark Andino. All right, so <laughs> God's got a plan for the universe. God's got a plan for the earth and God's got a plan for you. Amen. Ephesians 2.7. The Bible says of you that he wants to, in the ages to come, that's eternity, show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For you on planet Earth, in the universe, God wants to show his riches and his grace through you. So the first big idea you got to get is God's got these three distinct plans. Number two, let's go to Exodus chapter four. Second big idea. There are two main groups that God is dealing with in history. Two main groups that God deals with. Two main groups that he called out of the Gentiles. All right? The first one is Israel, his Old Testament nation. Exodus 4.22, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. That is God looking at a nation, Exodus 4.22. And he's calling a nation his corporate son, his physical son, his political son. He looks at all those people, that group, and he calls them my son. Okay? Uh, go to uh, Ephesians chapter 4 again. Mm. The other main group is the body of Christ. So he called out a nation in the Old Testament that would be a political entity. He calls out a body in the New Testament church, which would be a spiritual entity. Ephesians 4.12 says, uh, let's jump to 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In the Old Testament with the nation, it's a corporate son. God's dealing corporately with a physical, political nation. In the New Testament church, God is dealing with individual sons. He's putting individual people into a body. It's an invisible, spiritual body that he's working through right now. That's why this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's why it doesn't really matter what happens in the election. I mean, as an American, it bothers me, but as a Christian, I'm not connected to the earth, Amen. right? I don't have any inheritance here. My inheritance is in the heavens, right? My riches are in heavenly places in Christ. So we can't get too attached to the earth because we're heavenly and spiritual and, and, and part of this thing. Now, third big idea. <clears throat> Both groups go through a similar five-point process. Both groups 
go through a similar five-point process. I'll give you the points. Number one, both go through a formation period. A formation period. With Israel, it was Abram into Egypt. God is forming this people. He hasn't called them a nation yet, but from Abram to Egypt, he's forming them. He's calling them out. For the church, it starts all the way back in Matthew chapter 10. God starts calling out these disciples to be separate and different. Is that a body of Christ yet? No. But he's starting to form those people that will eventually be a part of the body. Formation is first. Number two is calling out. He forms them, and then he calls them out. For Israel, it's the exodus out of Egypt. When he, they exit, exit, exodus, express, excite, right? That's when you see EX in front of a word. It means something's getting out. The exodus out of Egypt is them being called out. For the church, it's Acts chapter 8 to 20. Through Acts chapter 8 to 20, you see that God is turning to the Gentiles and he's calling out this people into this body known as the church. The third thing is an establishment period. There's a period then when after they've been formed, after they've been called out, they are established. For Israel, it's under David and Solomon. That is the height of of Israel's kingdom. They are the great, that was the greatest. I mean, Solomon was considered the wisest man in the world at that time. For the church, it's Acts chapter 21 to 28. That's when the church really was thriving. Acts chapter 21 to 28. I'm up to four, right? Number four, a period of decline and demise. You can read all about Israel's demise in the prophets. The prophets, God starts sending them prophets when they start turning away from the truth. And you read the prophets, you see Israel turning away, declining, demising, or facing their demise and God warning them. For the church, I would say 1881. 1881 really marks the Bible revision phase and God's people just becoming more and more lukewarm. And if you had to say, when did Laodicea start? I'd say around 1881. Before that time, you've got men like Luther, you've got men like Taylor, you've got men like Goforth, you've got men like you know, John Patton, you've got men like uh, uh, David Livingston, Stan, you know, Greenfell, you've got all these great missionaries all in that Philadelphian church age. For the last hundred plus years, what have you had? I mean, you guys are great, but what have we had, you know? When the face of Christianity is, you know, uh, what's his name over there in Saddleback? Um, Rick Warren and Joel Olstein. If that's the best you got, church, as a corporate thing, if even Billy Graham is the best we could come up with, we're not at our height anymore. We're down, we're demising, we're turning down. And then the last one is the apostasy and destruction. In Israel, you see in 721 B.C., Assyria comes in, steals, and takes the northern tribes into captivity. And then a, a little while later, I think you say, like, you say like 586, the dates are all over the place, everybody's got a different date. But you get Nebuchadnezzar coming into Judah and taking away the southern kingdom, burning the temple, ransacking Jerusalem. So Israel is carried away, they, their apostasy leads to their destruction. 
And for the church, we end in apostasy. Laodicea is an apostate church. Thankfully, God gets us out of here, not before he wants to throw up at the sight of us, the Lord says. So that's the sad, and both, both groups go through a similar five-point process. Number four, I'm humming right along. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. All right? There are three major events in your Bible. Three major events in your Bible. First major event, the first coming of Christ, to die for our sins. That's what we remember now, right? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, um, the Lord says there, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. The Lord left the church the table, why? To remember Calvary. Right? And hopefully, I think in just under a month, we'll have the Lord's table again, and some of our guys will preach, and the goal is to get us to remember Calvary, to think about the sacrifice, to look back to the cross. That's why God lifted, because you know why? In all the busyness of life, it sure is easy to forget about Calvary. I know our friend Dave Spurgeon, if you ever read his prayer letters, at the end of the prayer letter, he used to sign, probably still does, remember Calvary, because that's what we got to remember. Now, we remember Calvary because that's a big thing for us. Hey, that's where we got our name written in the book of life. That's where we got turned from death to life. I mean, you excited about Calvary? Are you glad that on an old rugged cross on a hill far away, the Son of God was slain to deliver you from so great a death? Thank you, Jesus. That's what we look back to. And we've got this ordinance to keep looking back to Calvary. But the second big event is the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And in the millennium, and even into eternity, that's what they'll remember then. Now we look back on the first coming, but after he returns, they're going to look back on the second coming. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. I'll show you. Zechariah 14. This is the millennium. This is the coming kingdom. I'll show you what feasts they keep in the millennium because the law returns in the millennium. And they keep a feast. Zechariah 14, look at 16. All right? Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, right, that's tribulation, shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall, come, it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord leaves the world the Feast of Tabernacles to remember the second coming. The Feast of Tabernacles is when Jesus Christ will return. He will return probably in the fall during that Feast of Tabernacles to commemorate when God would tabernacle or dwell with men. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is kept in the millennium and possibly even out into eternity, but definitely the millennium, because God, look, listen, the Lord wants the world to remember the second coming, 
because that's the big deal to the father. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal, yes, but it's not the biggest deal to the father to have seen his son naked and whipped and hung on a cross. What's really a big deal to the father is, here's my son, the king. And into, each, into the millennium, when that kingdom comes, it's, you're going to be looking back at a king sitting on a throne and commemorating the fact that that lamb that was slain is the lion that now reigns. That's what the Lord wants us to remember into that millennial kingdom. Which brings us to the third big event, the millennium. The coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So that's what are we on. Number th- that was four. Here's number five. Um, the theme of the Bible, the theme of the Bible is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the climax. That is the ultimate event. That is what the Bible points to. There is more about the second coming than the first coming. There is. We might say there's like 48 prophecies at least of his first coming. There is 300 plus prophecies of his second coming. Three quarters of your Bible really deals with the second coming because that's the theme, the Bible. And there's this, go to Philippians chapter two. With that in mind, there are two days you have to get in your Bible. Two days. You gotta separate these two because if you don't separate these two, you're gonna turn your Bible into a pile of marshmallow fluff. Philippians 2. Because that second coming has kind of two parts or two aspects to it, which are represented by these two different days the Lord mentions. The first day is the day of Christ. It's called the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Christ includes and refers to the rapture of the church and our review at the judgment seat of Christ, which includes our reward. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this. I'm sorry, I said two, but let's look at 1.6. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.10, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Right? The, Paul is writing about that day, that coming day, when Jesus Christ will gather us off the earth rapture us. That word is not in the Bible, but it just means a, a, like a consummation, a, a gathering, so to speak, like when you're wrapped up in something. So the rapture is that catching away. The Bible says it's our, our gathering together unto him. If you want the biblical phrase for it, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he's going to gather us together unto him and he's going to review, review our works. How did you run that race? Do you deserve a prize? Do you get the reward that I had laid up for you? That's the first day. That is a day reserved for the church applies to the church. The second day, if you go to Isaiah chapter 2, you see the day of Christ really only spoken of in Paul's epistles to the church because it's something unique to the church and the church was a mystery hid in the Old Testament. But the day that you see most of the Bible pointing to is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not the day of Christ. 
If you make them the same, you will run into a lot of theological problems. The day of the Lord is not the rapture of the church. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to Israel and to the world. The rapture is relatively secret. The revelation is very public. It says, every eye shall behold him. Israel's going to see him and mourn, and the world is going to quake, right? And in Isaiah chapter 2, you see a little something about that. Look at 2.11. Are you looking forward to seeing Jesus Christ? Amen. Right, that's a day where we're supposed to have comfort, 1 Thessalonians 4. The day of the Lord is not a day of comfort. It's a day of howling. It's a day of wailing. It's a day of trouble. Isaiah 2.11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. And the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord, that's in that day. When you see in that day, and you know it's second coming, of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone, hallelujah, shall be exalted in that day. That's the day of the Lord. That's a very different day than the day of Christ. If you make them the same, no matter what Stephen Anderson says, you're going to end up with theological problems. If you make them the same, like whoever your commentator on your study Bible is, you're going to have problems. They are separate days that refer to separate things and that apply to separate groups. Keep your eye on the big picture if you want to keep your, put your Bible together right. Six, number six. All right? The Bible talks about two kingdoms being established. Dr. Ruckman wrote a book many, 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 many years ago called The Sure Word of Prophecy. It's a great book. And he talks about the theme of the Bible being the king and his kingdom. And he done hit the nail on the proverbial head in that statement because these two kingdoms are really what the Bible's about. First kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, which involves um, the Old Testament and Israel. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Again, I'm just giving you the big picture here. I'm just slapping these things and moving on. But if you guys want to be worth your salt as a Bible student, you can investigate these further. I'm not expecting to be doing a deep dive on any of these things. But um, the kingdom of heaven, that expression, the kingdom of heaven, appears 32 times only in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven appears 32 times only in the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew, for those of you that know, or should know, that is about Jesus Christ the King. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as a king, so it makes sense that in that book we get the kingdom of heaven mentioned. Matthew eleven twelve 12 is a key verse for the kingdom of heaven. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven is always referring to a physical, literal, visible, political kingdom on the earth. I'll say that again. The kingdom of heaven, wherever it is found, is referring to a physical, literal, visible, political kingdom on the earth. 
Heaven is a place. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of heaven in this place called earth. The disciples in the Old Testament, or I should say in the book of Matthew, which is still doctrinally Old Testament, were taught to pray on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the rule of heaven in this place called earth. That's the kingdom of heaven. But the Bible also talks about, if you go to Luke 17, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is primarily directed towards or in the New Testament and primarily deals with the church. Um, Luke 17, verse 20. Please know that the kingdom of God appears in Paul's letters to the churches. The kingdom of heaven never does. Paul, the apostle to the Gentile church, never talks about the kingdom of heaven, never mentions the kingdom of heaven, but he does talk about his fellow workers in the kingdom of God, time and again. Um, Luke 17, 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For, they, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God is a spiritual invisible kingdom within the believer, right? It is a spiritual, invisible kingdom within the believer. Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is a very another key verse. Romans 14, I'll let you flip there. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not anything physical that you could touch or taste or see, but righteousness, that's invisible, and peace, that's spiritual, and joy, that's intangible, in the Holy Ghost. All right? If God is a spirit then the kingdom of God is spiritual. Heaven is not God, right? God may have a throne in heaven, but he's not heaven. That would be pantheism, right? To make God matter and energy. That's not true. So people say, oh, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. You're smoking crack, right? Because God is not heaven, and heaven is not God. Now, you could flip there, but in Genesis chapter 1, I'm not going to maybe read the verse, but if you want to note, Genesis 1.26, the first Adam was king over both kingdoms. He's made in God's image. He's told to be fruitful. There's a spiritual aspect to Adam's dominion or his reign or his position. And then he said that he could have dominion over the earth. That's physical. So the first Adam had a spiritual mantle and a physical mantle. He was king over the kingdom of God, so to speak, and the kingdom of heaven. Over the spiritual, because he was a son of God, made in God's image, that's spiritual. And he had dominion over the fish and the sea and the lamb, that's physical, that's tangible, that's, you know, earthly. He loses them, right? We'll talk about that more in the next session. But if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 4, this will help you clear up a little, you know, 
people like to call this a contradiction. Because when Jesus shows up, he's offering both kingdoms. That's why people make them the same. Because in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, um, Jesus Christ is beginning his public ministry, and he says, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Earthly, political, tangible, physical. And then you flip over to Mark, chapter 1. It's another account of Jesus Christ beginning his public ministry. And he says again, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So is that a contradiction? Absolutely not. The first Adam was king over both kingdoms before he fell. The last Adam is king over both kingdoms, and he's making an offer of both kingdoms when he came. Now, Israel rejected him, so the kingdom of heaven goes into mystery form until the second coming, but the kingdom of God was there. It's given to the Gentiles after they, Israel rejects him in Acts 7, right? So it's turning to the Gentiles. So first Adam had them lost. Second Adam offers them both. Idea number seven. The devil was created for a specific purpose. And this one's a tough one. Oh, it's a tough one for the nuts to crack, Right? But if you go to Proverbs chapter 16, you right? Hurry with me now. <clears throat> Proverbs 16. Look at this. Look what it says here in Proverbs 16:4. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Nothing the devil does catches God by surprise. That's a comfort. Go to Job 41, to the left a little bit. I know I'm going fast, but I expect you to know a little bit more where stuff is in the Bible, so try to keep up. If not, you could just listen. Job 41 is talking about the devil. One of his names is Leviathan. And it says there, is God speaking about the devil? He tells Job, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? Because he's a little serpent, you know, swimming in the sea. Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down. Canst thou put an hook into his nose? Or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Because that's how, that's how the devil talks to God, by the way. When, when the devil comes into God in Job 1 and Job 2, he comes in real humble. He doesn't come in like he comes in with you, like a roaring lion. He comes in meek like a servant. And he says, will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Nothing the devil does catches God by surprise, and nothing the devil does is beyond God's permission. That's good to know. The devil is not fleas that you get too close to somebody with the devil. The fleas are going to jump on you and, oh, that's crazy talk. That's not Bible. The devil is a dog on a leash, 
and God lets the slack off the leash sometimes, and he lets him bark and get real close, and sometimes he reins that sucker in and puts the choker on him to bring him back into his little cage. But the devil is a dog on a leash. God uses him like his hammer, like his destroyer, like his attack dog. He's using him. Think about it. The Lord let the devil rough up Israel from 1939 to 1945. God let the devil do that to them. Why? To get them ready to become a nation in 1948. To get the world sympathetic towards them so they would call them a nation in 1948. God let it happen. You got a problem with that, take it up with my boss. But that's, that's what God did. The Lord will let the devil rough up Israel again in the great tribulation. Why? So they call on Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So they're humbled enough and in their distress, they call upon him. But the devil is a dog on a leash. He he's, has a purpose. God uses him, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Number eight. All right? The story of the Bible, and I use that word story to mean the account of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible, the, the, the trajectory of the Bible, is a 7,000-year parenthesis in eternity, right? You got eternity over here. You got eternity all the way over here. And you got this little parenthetical called time. That's 7,000 years right here. And that's what the Bible is dealing with. It's dealing with this 7,000-year parenthesis in eternity. Now, maybe you've seen the movie Gladiator. If you haven't, it's a good movie. But Maximus says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And Galatians 6, 7 to 8 says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man doeth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Your choices in the parenthesis determine your eternity. What you decide to do in this little sliver called time affects forever. In Ezekiel 28, we find out the cherubims had a choice. Satan obviously chose his own plan, but he had a choice. We read in Isaiah 6 about the seraphims. They seem to be connected to the altar. They have a choice. We read about Revelation 12, about angels rebelling against God. They have a choice. A third of them chose to go against God. Everything God made has a choice, contrary to the stupid ideas of John Calvin. Everything God made has a choice. From cover to cover, there's a choice. And guess what? You have a choice. (laughs) You have a choice in this parenthesis. The whole thing is, you choose God's plan or you don't. If you want to be a part of God's plan, you get to enjoy eternity with him. You don't want to be a part of God's plan? God says, you could take door number two. But it's all about a choice. So for someone to say there's no choice involved, it is so contrary to the whole scripture. You say, what verse do you have? Genesis to Revelation. It's the whole Bible is about a choice. And beings and creatures that choose God and beings and creatures that don't choose God. That's the story of the Bible. And what happens in that parenthesis affects forever. Number nine. The story or the timeline of the Bible, the timeline of the Bible is one week. All right? You got to remember that. It's only a week. 
He said, God, this is taking forever. He's like, it's just been a week. I'm just doing a week of work here. That's all I'm doing is a week. 2 Peter 3.8, if you want to flip there. Many of you know that already. You knew I'd go there because you're Bible scholars. All right. Um, that's the key verse that really shows you that. Um, Second Peter 3.8 says, <clears throat> But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So one day is the same as a thousand years to God. That is a bit, you got to get that, because you can't put your Bible together if you don't see that big picture. That will yield some interesting fruit, you know? For example, in Genesis chapter 1, you find out that the first mention of life comes on the fifth day. 4,000 years pass, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, and on the fifth day, or I should say one day, two day, three day, four days, and on the fifth day, life appears, right? And then you read about Jesus Christ showing up at a grave called Lazarus, and he says, you know, get the stone away, and she says, oh, been four days. He must stink. In the book of Genesis, life shows up on day five. In the New Testament, the one who is life, Jesus Christ, showed up on the fifth day. Jesus Christ, who is life, showed up after four days passed to give Lazarus life. You see nice little nuggets. You'll find nice little parallels when you remember that the Bible is just one week. Hey, let's look at Gen- um, you, you could take my word on it. You could, you could look it up. But Genesis 1.5, Genesis 1.8, Genesis 1.13, Genesis 1.19, Genesis 1.23. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, though. Let's do it. Let's do it. We should go. We've got to go back there. Can't paraphrase. All right. What I want to say is this. Days 1 to 6 have a beginning and an ending. For every day, one, two, three, four, five, six, you see this little expression in verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, verse 31. You see this expression, evening and the morning. There was a beginning and an ending to each of those six days. Then you get to the seventh day. Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. The seventh day points to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The 7,000th year of earth's history will be that 1,000 year, the seventh day when God will say, let's rest. The earth will be at rest, Isaiah 14 says. The whole earth is at rest. Just like God rested on the seventh day, they'll rest on the 7,000th year, which is coming very soon to a city near you. But please notice, the seventh day has no ending. There is no evening and morning where the seventh day. The seventh day has no ending mentioned because this is God's eternal day. Because what God starts in the millennium goes out into eternity. Little things like that got to fascinate you. Amen. Little things like that got to make you just step back like I tried to do this morning and say, God, your book is amazing. Amen. That's amazing. Amen. Who would have thought, who hath known the mind of the Lord and who hath been his counselor? Amen. 
right? We know Shakespeare got his ideas from, you know, ancient Greek and Roman stories. We know, like, you know, maybe he stole stuff from Marlowe, and, you know, these guys stole an idea from here, and Ben Johnson, was, the guy, was he the guy that wrote this or that? And there's all this controversy about Shakespeare. But he was stealing stuff from other people. He got his ideas from other people. God thought this whole thing up. Amen. You think about that, from scratch, when there was nothing. God thought, you know what, I'm going to have no, no ending on the seventh day, so some Italian dingbat a few thousand years away will realize that maybe that points to the fact that my 7,000 millennium kingdom will have no ending. Right? These are things that God does for us. Last big idea. Number 10. All history, then, is God moving in one direction and the devil moving to oppose him. That is all of history. It's God going this way and the devil trying to go that way. That's how you need to interpret history. See, Gen- I'll just show you a few examples of it. Genesis 1.28. You can read it while I say it. The Lord gives man dominion on the earth. He said, we're going to start a kingdom here. Let's do it. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. (laughs) The Lord gives man dominion, and the serpent shows up to seduce man and reclaim that dominion by default. Adam, you're not a worthy king. I'll take the earth back, God. Thank you very much. All history is God moving in one direction and the devil moving to oppose him. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you can look at it. You've got your first messianic promise there. And God says, one day, I'm going to have a seed that's going to bruise your head. He says, I'm going to have a seed. I promise you it's going to crush the serpent through a woman's seed. So what happens in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4? We see Satan and his boys come down to pervert the seed and try to foil God's plan. Wait a minute. Somebody that's born of a woman is going to destroy us? Well, let's go mess up the seed. And it got down to one family, Noah, that still was perfect in his generations. He hadn't corrupted his seed. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, except one man, Noah. You want to go to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. You want to read verses 16 to 21? Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. When Jesus was born, the devil moved to try to slay the Messiah, right? Herod says, kill everybody two years and under. Because about that time, he knew that Jesus had to be about two years old. So he says, two years and under, kill him. But Matthew 2.15, and, and, and it says, And Joseph was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. The Lord used Herod's persecution to fulfill a prophecy in the book of Hosea to prove his point. All history is that chess game, is that game between God and the devil. God says, do you play with him like a bird? I do. He comes over this side of the cage, I hit the cage, and the bird swings over here. And then I hit this side of the cage, and the bird goes over here. God says, I play with him. I just move around the way I want him to move. He's okay, you're going to go after my son? I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. He prophesied that in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Who in the world thought that that was going to be about the Messiah fleeing Egypt? But it had a reference to the Messiah fleeing Egypt. God fulfilled it because he let the devil do something. Because all of history is God moving one way and the devil moving to oppose him. 
even what's going on today in the Middle East, in the Ukraine, in the UN, in your country, everywhere, you've got to interpret it through that lens. God's doing one thing and the devil's moving to oppose him. And it's just this back and forth. You see it now in the Middle East. All this uprising, people are thinking differently about Israel. Israel's thinking differently about themselves. That's all getting ready for what's to come. It's all part of the plan. History is not about socioeconomic, geopolitical, cultural mores. That's what they want to tell you when they sit in their G20 summits and decide how they want to rule you like serfs again. But that's not what it's about. It's about God versus Satan. Now, you want to say that's oversimplifying? No, that's just the Bible. It's God versus Satan. And that takes a lot of different flavors, but that's what it is. So these big ideas about the Bible will give you a big picture of the scriptures. You keep your eye on these big ideas, and you'll be able to put this book together and interpret things as you come across them in your reading. So I hope that's a help to you. We'll have a word of prayer. We'll take a break. And then in the next session, we will break, start breaking the Bible down and creating our little framework and find the edges to fill in all the pieces.